Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from our listeners. We cannot do it without you. Thank you so much. I'm Katie Sewell in Seattle. My co-host Tiffany is in Rome, Italy. We are both working hard, but underemployed during this pandemic. So if you love the show and have the means, please support it. There are links in the show notes to Patreon or visit thebittersweetlife.net and click the donation button. Now, on the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today, if you haven't listened to our episode last week called Bad Teachers, maybe you want to skip it. We're going to be much more positive this week. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Don't skip it. It's super fun uh, where we talk about the teachers, particularly in Tiffany's life, but also in mine, who were damaging to our our worldview and our path. <clears throat> this week, we're going to be much more positive, and we're going to talk about some of the teachers who increased and improved our worldview and maybe led us in directions we might not have gone in otherwise, or set a great example. Or just inspired us. Yeah, inspired us. So yeah, this is the uh, this is the other half. The what is it? The yin and the yang. The comedy and the tragedy. This is the good side of the teacher conversation. <laughs> Yay! Finally. Finally. So where do we want to start? Well, who pops to your mind as far as a good teacher? Like, wait, if someone says, "Oh, who's the most amazing teacher? What's the most amazing teacher you've ever had?" Who's the first person who pops to your mind? The first person that pops to my mind is Mrs. Carlsberg, eighth grade, Islander Middle School on Mercer Island. Uh, she was my English teacher. She was very inspiring in the way that she used to always tell us, you can do more than you think you can. You just need to be patient. You need to take the time to do it. And so rather than have us read books that were typically assigned for eighth grade students, she assigned things that were would have been considered very hard. Adult literature. The only one I can remember... Well, I can remember a couple, but the first one I remember finding extremely challenging was Great Expectations. Mm. And she was like, you are smart enough to get this. You just need to take the time to to sit with it and get it. Which makes it sound like, oh yeah, just her words really buoyed me. Uh, But I I went home super inspired. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I got to tell you, probably within the first hour two hours of reading that book, I was in tears. I I don't understand what's going on. I can't, uh, I don't get it. You know, there's all these words I've never heard of. I have to look up everything. And, and my mom, being the wonderful mother that she is, intervenes and she says, well, what if we were to read this together? And so in truth, Mrs. Carlsberg, if you're listening, (laughs) I spent a lot of time listening to Great Expectations. I would lay in my bed at night and my mom would sit and read with me, read it out loud and and sort of allow me to just lay there and absorb the pictures. And then when there was words that I didn't understand, we would look them up, we would talk about them or I would look them up later, like I'd make a list. So in truth, I, I didn't really rise the occasion, but I did end up reading it and really loving that story, much with the help of my mom. And And for me, it was this door opening because all of a sudden, I had this proof that if I tried hard enough, with a little help from my family, that these things that were so-called adult books were actually 
accessible that my mom could say, well, don't you love the character of Mrs. Haversham? And I would say, yeah, yeah, I really love her. And not only do I love her, I have a picture of her in my head and, <laughs> and I understand how she fits in this story and I get what her psychological problems are. <laughs> so yeah, and I also credit that experience with why I know what the words endeavor and trepidation mean. <laughs> and just learning those two words, because people use them all the time, was like an entire world opening up. <laughs> So, and Mrs. Carlsberg was always a big fan of, of my writing, and she really liked the effort I would put into the book reports, my take on things. She was always very encouraging. And when I actually graduated eighth grade, which kids now do, right? You graduate from eighth grade. When we actually just finished eighth grade back then and moved on, Mrs. Carlsberg asked me, we each had to keep a folder of our work, all the reports we wrote, all the essays we wrote, and she asked me if she could keep mine as an example Aww. of what a really great folder was for kids in future years. And she kept it for a, a really long time, I think until she retired. And my mom also worked in the school district. And so when she retired, or at least stopped teaching that class, she gave that folder back to my mom. Aww. <laughs> Which when I read through it, I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> terrible writing <laughs> but of course I was an eighth grader so she's the first person that pops to mind mm. closely followed by another one but I'll save her until you tell me about your first one that pops to mind well it has to be Edie who is my first voice teacher mm -hmm. I mentioned her very briefly in the bad teachers episode as a sort of prelude to my really bad teacher but Edie was wonderful I met Edie when I was 15 years old. I had always loved all the performing arts, dance, acting, and singing. But around 14, 15, I started to really develop a passion for singing, mostly musical theater, but I was starting to get interested in opera too. And my mom said, well, should we should put you in voice lessons. So she found this teacher through a friend, and she was really just starting out. She was quite young, and... She she had students before, but not in that town. She'd come from California. And so I was one of her first students in Seattle, and we just hit it off. I don't know. We had some kind of chemistry. We ended up just becoming friends, like real close friends. We just loved each other. She was a great teacher, too. Uh, she really was. <laughs> but we just we had this relationship. She was one of my closest friends. Like, I just adored her, and she just adored me. It was, we just, it was mutual adoration for each other. Like I mentioned in the last episode, she wasn't concerned with her student's success and how that reflected on her. She just wanted to help transform young singers into what they had at least the potential to become. And I was really interested in musical theater when I started studying with her, but she inspired me so much with her love of opera that I fell in love with opera myself. And she's the reason I went into opera. It is her, really. And the things that she opened my eyes to as well. It's interesting. When you were saying that, it reminded me of, there's like a different class of teacher that when you're a little girl, you see them as these people you aspire to be. I think that's why kids sometimes say that they want to be teachers when they're little, but sometimes it can just be as subtle as there's something about the way that this person moves around. I want to be that. I could, yeah. I want to be like that. You know, Absolutely. I wanted to be her for sure. For sure. I had a recording of her singing The Marriage of Figaro when she was in college. Her dad had taped it 
and he'd been sitting in the audience and she told me that he kept rubbing his thumb against the microphone to make sure it was working. So every so often in this tape, you hear this because he's trying to make sure it's still on. Exactly. Um, But I listened to that. She gave me the tapes of it, four tapes, because Marriage of Figaro is so long. Mm -hmm. And of course, I only had the cassette tapes, you know, back in those days. Yeah. And I would listen to these tapes over and over again, over and over again. And like when I became old enough to drive, I started setting when I was 15. I started driving at 16. I would listen to them in the car on my way to school. And I just loved that it was her. I loved the music and I came to adore the Marriage of Figaro. But I just loved hearing her voice and hearing her sing. And I just, she was my idol, really. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. The second one I could I would say was my third grade teacher, Mrs. Sumnik. It's a tragedy in some ways that these young teachers later on get married and change their last names because they are so hard to find later. <laughs> I uh Oh true. Miss Sumnik, I guess it would have been it was her very first year teaching. And sometimes you get that first year teacher that's just right out of the gate, so much passion, so good. Yeah. She was like that. And one of the things I most vividly remember about her was the year that I was in her class was the year that they were taking applicants to be on the Challenger. Remember how the teachers, the Challenger was the space shuttle that took a teacher on board? As a way of helping us explore space and like our own possibilities for life, she applied as a teacher to be the one on the Challenger. Are you serious? Oh my god. And walked gosh. us through yes. the whole application process. What she had to do, what questions she had to answer. So we got to look at all these official NASA documents and we got to imagine in a very personal way that that our teacher could be the one that oh ends up going to space, you know, which made studying space all the more interesting. And I don't know about you, but for some reason, studying space was never one of my favorite no. topics. No. <laughs> and of course, she didn't get on. She wasn't chosen. Thank God. I know, it's so strange. But of course, when the Challenger explodes, you can imagine. Did you watch it live at school? Because we did. Oh, yeah. We watched it live. Yeah. And you can imagine watching it live after going through the entire imagination process that it's your favorite teacher in the world. Oh, my God. On that shuttle. Imagine her watching it with you. Imagine what she thought. I know. I've always wanted to ask her about it. Find her as an adult and ask her what that was like from her point of view. I don't know. She was just such a warm person and she feels like a different era she feels like very much of a woman of the 80s you know with the feathered hair and and of course as a third grader you think she's the most beautiful woman in the world yeah that's how I was about my first grade teacher I did actually end up seeing her again in 1999 so I hadn't seen her from third grade all the way up to 1999 so in 1999 I was probably like 22 years old right around there and I went back to Minnesota for a wedding and I had figured out what her her married name was. And I called her on the phone. And it turned out she had not only stayed on teaching in this small Minnesotan town, but she had become the principal of the entire district, the person running everything. Wow. So I called her up and asked her, does she remember me? And can I stop by and say hello? And of course, I think with teachers and, you know, my mom even might be able to correct me if I'm wrong. But I think particularly when you have your first year, the kids who were with you from the very beginning. You remember them. They are the ones. And maybe the other classes get a little fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember anything that we talked about, except I do remember walking across the lawn toward her office window where she was inside and her seeing me. 
and me coming in and her saying, my gosh, you look exactly the same. (laughs) (laughs) So that was pretty cute too. Very fond memories of her. Both of the people that I cited anyway are these teaching types of people who are able to spark your curiosity in a way that other people can't. They give you the spark, but they also say, you can do this, you know? It's it's like a combination of the two. I think that you really can't underestimate warmth as well, but particularly in elementary school. Mm-hmm. That is probably the most important thing. A lot of people probably don't realize that as teachers. They think, you know, be strict and be... Maybe they're good teachers, but maybe they don't have that warmth. I do remember a second grade teacher who wasn't my favorite, but something about her, I can remember things that she said. Like I can remember her saying, if your parents tell you that they're going to get you a babysitter, you tell them, I don't need a babysitter. I need a child supervisor. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're not babies. (laughs) And nobody is sitting on you. (laughs) So tell them you need a child supervisor. And she said other things that always made me feel like, you know, I might be in second grade, but I'm still a person. She really treated us like we were just small people. We weren't just kids. We were, you know, we were fully human. We just were little. And I think that that's important too. Mm-hmm. But my, my favorite, 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 favorite school teacher of my whole school career would have been my high school English teacher. And I had a couple high school English teachers, but I had one for several years because I ended up taking lots of English electives because I loved English so much and because I liked him so much. But his name was Mr. Olstein. Maybe he's listening. Who knows? Hi, Mr. Olstein. Hi, Mr. Olstein. He was, he is, he still teaches at that school, Bellevue Christian High School. And I know this because I went there and I did a book reading for the junior high that school, the junior high, and the high school is on the same campus. And I saw him. I hung out with him. It was so, so cool. But anyway, so he was my sister's teacher before me, obviously, because she's older than me. And my sister was really into drama, like I was, and she was even more into movies. I was much more into theater, but she was very into movies and kind of thought maybe she wanted to go into that industry. And he was, in addition to being an English teacher, he was also a film critic for the Seattle PI. He got all sorts of invitations to go see film screenings. And he used to take select students, high achievers, or the, you know, the people who would really be interested in that. Or, and he used to take my sister every once in a while. And uh, one time, he took me with my sister. I mean, it wasn't just like a date or anything. It was like there were lots of other kids. <laughs> he didn't buy there. flowers prior to it, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> he was married to one of my junior high teachers, actually, at the time. <laughs> I did go to a movie with him alone once, I do have to say. It was totally normal, though. Trust me. It was totally normal. It was at the old Egyptian theater. Do you know that movie theater? Of course. The Egyptian yeah. in Seattle. And it was Howard's End. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure I was only in eighth grade because of when that film came out. And I went because I was obsessed with those directors who had directed A Room with a View, who was my favorite, which was my favorite movie. This was something they were doing after, and it was the same author and the same actors. And I went, and I mean, it was amazing to see a, it wasn't a premiere, obviously, it was a press screening, but to me, it was as important as if it had been a premiere. And it was this huge, gorgeous theater, and there was just a smattering of 
reporters there or film critics. But anyways, I also went to like some actual things with the stars of the movies, like actual press conferences. He would bring us along and I met in a really important Italian director at one of them and met some other people. And no, he was really cool about that. But that wasn't really why I liked him. That was just sort of the cool bonus about him. But he was just an amazing teacher. He was a kind of teacher where he would take all of our desks and put them all in a big circle. And we would discuss, like, let's say we had just read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. And instead of sitting in rows and having him, you know, ask us questions, we would sit in this big circle and we would have a discussion. Again, it's sort of like treating you as if you're an adult, treating you as if, you know, your ideas are just as important as his ideas. He also did fun things like, you know, he'd have us bring in like our favorite song and go over the the lyrics of the song and say why we liked it and what it meant to us. And it was just great. He just, he really inspired me to be a better writer. I took an elective with him. It was my first class with him and it was called Writing for Publication. I could have done anything. I could have done basket weaving, but I was like, no, I want to take this writing for publication class. No idea that I would end up being a published writer. And I ended up as my project. (laughs) This is going to sound kind of funny. But I wrote a script to an episode of Cheers. (laughs) That's great. I mean, I wrote other stuff, too. I wrote other stuff, too. That's not the only thing I wrote for the class. You know, just the other day, I was thinking about how you used to be obsessed with Cheers. I was obsessed. strange. It's just such a strange thing. I don't know. I was very influenced by my sister. She was obsessed with Cheers. Like, you had stakes in the game about whether or not Sam and What's-Her-Face were going to get together. Rebecca, I think. Uh, yeah, I love that show. I still love that show. I, I haven't seen a, a rerun of that show in years, but I still love that show. It's a quality show. But the point is, I brought in this thing that I had been working on for a long time. It was like a full-length episode. We started reading it out because it was a very small class because it was a very special, specific thing. And he's like, Tiffany, why did you bring in the script of a Cheers episode? And I said what do you mean? I wrote it. He couldn't believe, he thought it was an actual script for the show. Oh, that's nice. And I mean, he wasn't pulling my leg. He actually thought it was. That's nice, yeah. I think he's the first teacher who really made me believe that I had true talent as a writer. That seed was just sort of planted and left alone for a long time, but eventually that seed, you know, turned into something, and uh, and I think he has a, it was a big part of that. Well, and I want to talk about like a different kind of teacher, one who's very difficult, but because they're so difficult, they end up being great in some way. We talked last episode about one that was difficult who was not so great. Mm-hmm. But I have one teacher whose name was Mrs. Sayers, who was an English teacher, but she was the most challenging English teacher, at least from a writing perspective, that I think anybody ever encountered. The thing that stands out to me the most, and I think about her all the time, because I write, I try to write almost every day. I I never quite get to every day. But, you know, three to four days a week, I write at some point during the day. Every single time I write, I think about Mrs. Sayers. Really? She was the one that taught us to do the five-paragraph essay, which I don't know if kids have to do that anymore, but that used to be the standard form that would get you through high school and college, was to be able to write the five-paragraph essay. And... She demanded that any time we write, we were not allowed to use any conjugation of to be, which you don't think you use all the time, but you do. You use it all the time. That's interesting. And so I would have just be pulling my hair out, trying to figure out how can I say this 
in a different way so that I don't use a conjugation of to be. It was so hard as a freshman in high school. The essays took five times as long to write because you can't use any kind of shorthand whatsoever. But man, I'm a better writer because of that. And I do use conjugations of to be in stuff that I write. But I always look at it and I think, do I need to say it this way? Or is there a better, more eloquent, more illustrative way to say this? So thank you, Mrs. Sarah's, because you are literally in my head every day when I'm writing. And she also was my typing teacher. So the reason I can type on a computer is because of her. And I can still hear her typing instructions in my head sometimes too, but that doesn't mean I'm a great typist. I, I'm not a bad one, but I also broke my finger while I was taking typing. I broke my ring finger on my left hand. And so I still to this day don't really ever use that finger because I had to learn around it. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny how that works? Because when I took typing, I missed the day that they taught that if you are using your left hand to write a particular letter and you need to capitalize it, you use the right shift to capitalize. And then if you're using your right hand, you use the left shift to capitalize. I missed that day. And to this day, I cannot use my left hand shift key. I will use my right hand shift key no matter how far I have to stretch my hand. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> but, I, but it's these habits, these muscle habits that we get. Yeah. When I was in second grade, I, or I think around there, I missed the lesson in how to tell time on a actual watch face. And I could not figure that out for ages. For ages. I had a digital watch all the way through, I think, fifth grade that's so funny i didn't realize they taught that in one day i thought that was something that you kind of learn over time when you're little well i'm sure it was over time but i think i missed like the bulk of it i think i that was either when i had the chicken pox ah, okay or i was in a play when i was a second grader also that rehearsed until 11 p.m or midnight and so my <laughs> mom used to let me sleep in in the morning so it's possible that i just they always talked about the clock before I got to school. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it was. Crazy. Yeah, I had a couple of very challenging teachers in grad school, in undergrad. Well, which one stands out the most? Which is the one that pops into your head the most? Well, the one that pops into my head was Mrs. Stein, or Ms. Stein. And she taught harmony. And man, I was not good at harmony. Oh, jeez. And it must have been fourth year. I had finished, you know, Harmony 1, Harmony 2, Harmony 3, Harmony 4, and I was doing my electives, which we had to do at least one Harmony elective a year or a semester. And I think it was, you had to take classical music, uh, like a Beethoven sonata, for example, and you had to go through it and find all the chord progressions and analyze them. You had to basically figure out what was in the composer's head when he was writing it the structure of the music and the, the cadence of it and the arc of it and the, you know, the dominant and the, I can't even remember all of this stuff. It's so heady, but I had such a hard time with it. And I just dragged my feet and I, I felt like everyone else in the class was so much better than me. And they probably were. I probably jokingly made it clear how hard it was for me. And she was tough. She was a tough cookie, but she was not an, a mean person. And so she was a little bit tough on me. And I think she kind of thought that I wasn't very smart. <laughs> um, 
Why does she pop into your head, though? I think she pops into my head because when it was finally like our final essay of the year, we, we had to take a piece of music. I'm pretty sure it was a, a Beethoven sonata. And we had to analyze it. So with all of the, the chord progressions, but it's difficult to find a chord progression in piano music. It's like organ music where it's just chords. It's, you know, it's arpeggios. It's, it's complicated. So we had to, to, to first analyze the music and then we had to write like an eight page essay about it. And I mean, I saved it because I want to look back at it someday and look like I actually understood this at one point in my life because there's no way I understand it anymore. Um, <laughs> but I did this famously the night before it was due, Katie, and it was our final project. <laughs> and I did that very often. Actually, more often than not, I would do things the morning they were due. Mm. I would get up at like 3 a.m. and write my papers that were due at 9 or due at noon. And I did that twice that year. And I got an A plus and an A minus, respectively, on those papers. This one I got an A minus on. And I remember her writing on the front of it. Tiffany, exclamation point, you're smart. (laughs) Like as if she was shocked. (laughs) She goes, I never want to hear you complain again. Uh, That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, we should probably leave it there. But I just want any teachers who are listening who had me, who know that you had an influence in my life, like Miss Sour, Mrs. Sitesnik, Mr. Santuli, all you guys, you're in there too. This show is just limited in time. <laughs> you gotta <laughs> pick one or two. So thanks to all you great teachers out there, including my mom who uh, helped me read ex- Great Expectations and was spent, what, 20 plus years as a beloved first grade teacher. Aww. And she just had her birthday. Happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday, Mrs. Sewell. Yes. And until next time, thanks for all your thoughts. Keep in touch. Thanks, teachers. And a reminder that we have revamped our Patreon prizes to be much more fun, much more interactive. Not that they weren't fun before. They were fun before, but now they're really fun. Yeah. Our Patreon prizes are all about content, bonus content now, and at the uh, upper level, access. Access to us, whether it be by video conference or question and answer episodes, private special episodes. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. And I think that it's something that you might want to check out if you're interested in supporting our show. Yeah. And even at the $5 a month level, you get access to the super secret truth or dare episode and you get a handwritten letter from one of us and you get to be a person who gets to contribute the questions, the next truth, the next dares. Yeah, because we're going to do another Secret Truth or Dare episode. Yes. Oh, also, Katie, for those of you who are thinking about hopping on our Patreon or those of you who already are on our Patreon, download the Patreon app if you haven't already because there is a feature there called Lens and we're going to start using that. And Basically, it's um, it's sort of like Instagram stories, but it'll be private just for our Patreon patrons. We'll be doing a little bit more personal stuff there you know i mean it's all short very very short 12 second videos or what have you we will be letting our patrons in on you know little glimpses of our life that we don't want to share with the general public on instagram yes so check it out there's links in the show notes and until next time this is the bittersweet life i'm katie sewell i'm tiffany parks join us again bye thanks for listening Our logo is designed by Jody Rick at The Lost Laboratory, with help from our muse, Caravaggio. Lori Lee Elliott manages The Bittersweet Life on YouTube. We have a brand new newsletter. If you want to hear what we're reading and thinking about once a month, 
Let us know by sending an email to bittersweetlife at mail.com, and we'll put you on the list. And some of you write us the most beautiful emails. If you haven't already, leave us a review as well on your podcast app. Your support is vital to the show, so whether you send in a financial contribution at thebittersweetlife.net or spread the word about the show to your friends or through your social media by writing an article or doing an interview with us, we appreciate your support. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for keeping this show going. Take care, be safe, talk soon.